This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in this hour, when Obama took office, the Democrats controlled both houses of Congress as well as the presidency. Now, as you may have heard, all three are controlled by the Republicans. How did we get from there to here? Tom Frank has been thinking about that. We'll speak, we'll speak with him about what happened later in this hour. Plus, some L.A. history, the draft resistance movement of the Vietnam era. Bob Zaw will comment. First up, Donald Trump and L.A.'s anti-Trump Jonathan Gold. He died on Saturday. Trump Watch starts right now. Well, last week was Trump's worst week. Maybe you remember that business with Putin in Helsinki and then the feeble efforts at damage control and then the doubling down by inviting Putin to Washington. How much damage did all of that do to Trump and to Republicans in the upcoming elections? For answers and for some thoughts about Jonathan Gold, we turn to Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's executive editor of the American Prospect and a regular contributor to the LA Times op-ed page. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here. Well, before we talk about Jonathan, we have to talk about Donald. Uh, for a while there, it looked like Trump was in trouble, not only with Democrats and independents because of his submissive attitude towards Putin, but also it looked like he was in trouble with at least some Republicans. Where do things stand today? Well, he was in trouble with some Republicans if trouble meant condemnation. Yeah. Uh, but not even the Republicans who condemned him uh, suggested doing anything about it, uh, like, uh, never mind impeachment or even censure, but like even holding hearings uh, to uh, sort of flesh out uh, exactly what uh, Trump was uh, uh, thinking about when he was uh, getting so uh, enthused. Uh, about, about Vladimir Putin. So um, there was not much there to uh, uh, it, it, at any stage for the Republicans uh, really indicating that they were going to do anything about Trump. And of course, all the polling shows that the Republican base is still staunchly uh, pro-Trump. Uh, of course, the Republicans can't really survive politically just with their base alone. Yes. So that's the basis of uh, Democrats' hopes going into November. And one of the facts about the polling, which shows that Republicans continue to give Trump overwhelmingly high approval ratings, but one of the facts I didn't know until recently is there are fewer people calling themselves Republicans these days. I guess to be a Republican now means to support Trump, and that is evident in the polls, but the, the, the fall-off in Republican identification is not evident uh, from the polls. Have I got that right? Yes, you do. And, of course, you know, it, it, it's been obvious if you follow, for lack of a better term, the commentariat, that any, uh, you know, mo most of the uh, people uh, who, who think uh, more systematically about politics and who were Republicans have, uh, in one degree or another, bailed uh, for this election, at least, including, you know, such venerable Republicans as uh, uh, George, George Will and uh, William Crystal, uh, among, among others. So that, that much was evident. And it's been evident if you've been following political 
developments over the last 20 years in California, in which Republicans now are a smaller share of the electorate, not only by 20 points than the Democrats, but by the decline to state independence in California as well. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm reminded of uh, the line in uh, the Ernst Lubitsch, Greta Garbo comedy, Nanotchka, when someone comments on the effect of Stalin's purges, and Nanotchka says, yes, there will be fewer but better Russians. Uh, <laughs> I, I think we can, we, can, we can say at this point they, there are fewer, uh, and forgive me, uh, just but dumber uh, or uh, uh, more, uh, more uh, subject to epistemic closure uh, Republicans. <laughs> You just tuned in. We're speaking about Ninochka and epistemic closure with uh, Harold Meyerson on KPFK. Uh, now it's time for your Minnesota moment. That's news from my hometown of St. Paul. The new uh, NBC Marist poll published yesterday shows that Trump has become a major drag on Republican candidates in Minnesota and some other Midwestern states. His approval rating in Minnesota is now at 38%. This is a state where he came within two percentage points of winning, and he has even lower approval ratings in Michigan and Wisconsin, 36% approval in Michigan and Wisconsin. Those are states he carried narrowly. Uh, Harold, why is he doing so badly in Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Michigan? Well, for some of the same reasons we were just talking about the uh, general shrinkage of the Republican Party. I mean, his whole, uh, the whole thrust of what he's doing is to appeal to the most uh, rabid members of the Republican base. And, uh, you know, that, that is only a subset of the American public. And there were certainly people who voted for him in those Midwestern states who weren't part of the rabid Republican base, yeah. who probably aren't thrilled by separating uh, small children from their parents at the border who uh, probably have realized that while the economy as a whole is doing well, they are probably not doing well. Uh, the, the latest data show that uh, wages uh, in the last month uh, have, are actually lower than they were a year ago, average oh. wages. Um, and, you know, the, 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 there is a such as the ongoing Trump, for lack of a better term, shit show in Washington, uh, you know, may please, uh, you know, the Fox, the Fox News viewers, but Fox News viewers aren't enough to uh, either win elections or keep Trump's polling steady in the Midwest or anywhere else. Well, speaking of Fox News, there was some fascinating um, figures in the Fox News poll. They uh, asked how interested people are in the November elections. 46% of Americans said they are extremely interested. Uh that is less than half, doesn't seem that good. But in 2014, the last midterm elections, 29% said they were extremely interested. The one before that, 2010, 28% said they were extremely interested. My assumption is that people who are extremely interested are not going to vote for the Republicans. Do you agree? Well, if you'll recall, the midterm elections of both 2010 and 2014 uh, produced heavy Republican victories yes. uh, in, uh, in in Congress and, and in the states, uh, and that's what happens when you get a, a level of intensity in the twenty percentiles. When it goes to the mid forties, then you've got Democrats who are all uh, upset about something or other. And I think your conclusion is absolutely right. I think uh, there are Democrats who are extremely interested in the election who are going to outnumber 
the Republicans. And even if the percentage of Democrats who are extremely interested is about the same as the percentage of Republicans, because of what we were talking about earlier, to wit, there are more Democrats than there are Republicans, that still advantages the Democrats. Well, now I'd like to switch the subject from Donald Trump to Jonathan Gold from the darkness to the light. Uh, We've been thinking a lot about Jonathan Gold since he died on Saturday. Of course, he was one of the great people of Los Angeles, a restaurant writer of a unique kind, which won him the Pulitzer Prize for criticism when he was at the L.A. Weekly of blessed memory. The L.A. Times hired him after he won the Pulitzer Prize at the L.A. Weekly. One of the editors at the Weekly when Jonathan was writing there was Harold Meyerson. Uh, Harold, most of the obits uh, praised Jonathan as a restaurant critic because he wrote in about low-down ethnic restaurants instead of high-end gourmet places. He wrote about restaurants for working-class people and poor people instead of rich people. You know, these places in strip malls. Uh, food trucks, especially taco trucks, but 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 there was a lot more to Jonathan Gold than turning away from high end restaurants. Please please explain. Well, what what Jonathan did, and it's it's really I think remarkable, uh, is he began cruising the boulevards uh, in uh, in in the mid eighties with uh, writing counterintelligence at that point for the Weekly. Uh, that was the name of his column. Uh, but it was at a time when L.A. was becoming the equivalent of what New York was in 1910, the epicenter of a huge wave of immigration. Um, and what Jonathan was doing was doing a couple of things. Uh, he, he, I mean, he's doing many things. I mean, he not only introduced his readers to uh, as eateries of all descriptions, as you as you said. Um, uh, but and and of all cultures, but he was, he was so in a sense he was introducing them to what the food is like in maybe some obscure Chinese province or one of the Stan countries in Central Asia. Uh, but he was also by so doing uh, introducing readers who lived on the West Side, telling them, look, you should really go to the San Gabriel Valley, which for readers on the West Side, you know, was just as much an undiscovered country. Uh, as the obscure provinces of China. Um, He was a hugely integrative force uh, at a time when, you know, there aren't a hell of a lot of integrative forces uh, in uh, in Los Angeles. And, uh, you know, if if historians are looking back 50 years from now, this great red-blue rift we have in America over a number of issues, but a lot of it is over immigrants and immigration. And if they want to understand why the great cities are so pro-immigrant uh, in, in contradistinction to the Trump constituency. Uh, I can't think of a better way they could uh, really get a feel for this than reading Jonathan. Uh, that, that Jonathan, uh, more than any writer, because of the, the not just the brilliance of his writing, but the breadth of his uh, travelings around town and which is really kind of a traveling around the world, uh, really a, a, a sort of brought Los Angeles, I think, to uh, a much greater appreciation of all of the great benefits that come from this kind of diversity, from being a, a, a world city, as Los Angeles is. And honestly, I can't think of anyone else writing who quite 
did that. Writers write about what they know, and what they know is a, usually a fairly confined universe. Um, you know, there's uh, uh, there's Balzac's Paris, there's Saul Bellow's uh, Chicago, there's Dickens' London, but, you know, I mean, the, the, they took particular slices. Uh, Jonathan wrote about what he knew, too, which was a very particular slice. It was the food uh, that was served all around Los Angeles and cooked and what it represented and the cultures it represented and, you know, where exactly this thing came from and that, that, that dish came from. Uh, so that was his narrow slice. But it happened to be, a, you know, a narrow slice that nonetheless ran across the whole world. And in, in that, uh, he, he was writing about more cultures than a Bellow or a Balzac or a Dickens uh, uh, ever ever could, albeit, forgive me for saying this, in sort of bite-sized chunks. <laughs> uh, uh, so it was, it was really a unique contribution, and, and very much, uh, you know, I mean, he was doing this for decades before, you know, Donald Trump yes. was... Yes, uh, uh, on the horizon at all, but uh, uh, but he was nonetheless a kind of living, breathing, eating, digesting, tasting antithesis uh, to to you know the, the meanness and provincialism of of Trump and his world. And I think that that kind of reached a climax when Trump took office. That of day dark day, of course, was January twentieth, twenty seventeen. Uh, and one of the first things Trump did was ban Syrian refugees from entering the United States. A week later, Jonathan Gold's review in the L.A. Times on Saturday was about a place called the Syrian Kitchen. He said it was a probably, I'm quoting now, as unassuming a restaurant as exists in Van Nuys, a barely renovated storefront on a strip of auto body shops with four or five tables, a soda cooler in the corner, and a takeout business that dwarfs the sleepy pace of the cafe. He did kind of a profile of the woman who runs this Syrian restaurant in Van Nuys, Waha Greer. He says she moved here from Homs, Syria, 40 years ago. He said... She opened her modest cafe in 2014, and there you sense that she has become the surrogate Syrian mother for half the San, for half the San Fernando Valley. He said the food at this restaurant could sustain a civilization, and it has, close quote. That was the end of his restaurant review. He never mentions Trump. He never mentions the Syrian civil war or refugees or immigration. But by writing about a Syrian place in Van Nuys a week after Trump banned Syrian refugees from entering the United States, he didn't have to do any of those things. It's perfectly clear. He's reminding us that there are Syrians who are our neighbors and that L.A. is a better place because some Syrians came here. Uh, exactly. It was a yeah. Yeah, and, and, you know, I mean, those of us who uh, worked as journalists in L.A., as I did for, for many years, and saw part of our mission to explain, you know, uh, the broader city and perhaps by extension the broader world, to our readers, we all, you know, a lot of us were endeavoring one way or another to do that. Um, in some ways, Jonathan did it best, uh, and uh, uh, you know, his his com his commentary was, uh, you know, encased within his reviews, such as you just read, and and he did that stuff brilliantly. 
And he was also, as you mentioned, a fabulous writer. His most famous sentences were the ones he wrote in the L.A. Weekly in 1998. I quote, for a while in my early 20s, I had only one clearly articulated ambition to eat at least once at every restaurant on Pico Boulevard, starting with the fried yucca dish served at a pupuseria near the downtown end and working methodically westward toward the chili fries at Tom's Number no. 5 near the beach. It seemed a reasonable enough alternative to graduate school, close quote. And cost less. Uh, uh, not, not only because, not only because uh, there's a limited number of very costly restaurants on Pico Boulevard. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, uh, for anyone, uh, for any young people contemplating uh, careers, uh, well, I think the careers of lots of journalists uh, are, are, you know, have many crooked lines. Uh, I think Jonathan is an example, but, uh, uh, you know, you can do amazing stuff uh, in, in, in certain fields that hadn't been considered all that amazing before. And, and you know, that's really what he did with food criticism. I mean, uh, it, 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 it's only in the last couple decades that that genre has uh, really both expanded its readership and expanded its depth. Uh, and, uh, you know, Jonathan is responsible for a lot of that. And, of course, if you're writing about all the restaurants on Pico Boulevard starting downtown, the first group you're going to come to is P- the Pico Union neighborhood, which is maybe the poorest neighborhood in L.A., and the one that's filled with Central American refugees at the very moment he started writing, the Salvadorians, uh, the Nicaraguans. Uh, and, of course, that was a huge issue in American politics at that point. It was. It was. Um, and certainly, uh, you know, this is this slowly coming to the attention of, uh, of, of Angelinos. I remember in the late 80s, there was a fire in what was then uh, the tallest, and now it's the second tallest building in Los Angeles, Library Tower. And I was in L.A. watching the 11 o'clock news report as the janitorial workforce was pouring out. And at that point, I, I realized, gee, the people who clean downtown buildings are all these immigrants from, they look like they're Mexican or Central American. I mean... You know, at that point, that part of the city was becoming visible, uh, you know, only through the, the coverage of, of catastrophes. Uh, and, uh, you know, Jonathan began writing about it then by writing about its food, by, by schlepping down Pico Boulevard in his truck and his little in his pickup. And, uh, uh, you know, he was, he was uh, right, right there on the, uh, as that happened. And, of course, over the years politically... Uh, that is a group which uh, has gained, uh, certainly in, in the Mexican immigrant community, uh, a great deal of political power. Uh, uh, so, you know, uh, Jonathan was chronicling it uh, bite by bite uh, from, from, its, from the very outset. Bite by bite. Last word, a quote, last quote from Jonathan. I'm trying to get people to be less afraid of their neighbors. Jonathan Gold is irreplaceable for us. You can read Jonathan's reviews at latimes.com. You can read Harold Meyerson at prospect.org. Thanks, Harold. It was great having you on the show. Great being here, John. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK with Trump Watch and the Trump Watch podcast. Next up, from Obama to Trump, Tom Frank explains it all. That's in a minute on KPFK. 
when Trump Watch continues. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Later in this hour, draft resistance in L.A. during the Vietnam War. But first, New York Times op-ed columnist Michelle Goldberg wrote on Sunday about what she called this very dark time when the news from Washington often makes her sick with despair. We feel the same way, so we called Tom Frank. He's good at explaining things. He's founder of The Baffler, former columnist for The Wall Street Journal and Harper's, and a regular contributor now to The Guardian. He's written many books, and he's got a new one out now. It's called Rendezvous with Oblivion, Reports from a Sinking Society. Tom Frank, welcome back. I'm glad to be here, John. Well, there was a time when Democrats controlled the White House and both houses of Congress. That was 2009 and 2010, eight years ago. How did we get from there to here so quickly? Your book, oh my God. Your oh my God. book Rendezvous with Oblivion, deals precisely with that question. Why did millions of ordinary Americans support Donald Trump? You know, one answer is they were driven to madness by the presence of a black man in the White House. You don't agree that this is the most important explanation. Why not? Yeah, that's right. Because, I mean, there certainly are plenty of people who hated Barack Obama. And, I mean, I remember with a sort of feeling of shock the first time I encountered one of them. Yeah, those people people definitely exist, and they were definitely loud during the 2016 election and you had since then you've had a kind of a great awakening of you know racism in this country you know the like the march in charlottesville and stuff like that yeah but i think that that is the the people who really swung this election in my in my view and you know this is something you could argue about all day and all night but are those counties that the sort of uh, white working class voters in those upper midwestern states, a lot of those counties. And a lot of these are people who who voted for Obama the first time around and the second time around. And you can track this change. Um, and if that change had not, and, and also let's add into that, a lot of black working class people who voted for Obama and who were not enthusiastic about Hillary Clinton. And between those two groups, uh, that's basically the story of what happened in 2016, or I should say that's a story of what happened in 2016. Well, that's certainly where we can look to find <clears throat> the the swing votes. The, the Yeah, and, oh, and by the way, I, I mean, I can, I can go on and on about this for a long time, but I didn't even realize that Donald Trump was going to be the nominee until it was almost over. And then I started, you know, I started reading up on him, and everything I read said, you know, this guy is running this one-note racist campaign. And, uh, then I, so I was like, huh, that's that's weird. And I went and watched a whole bunch of videos on YouTube. I binge watched a whole bunch of Trump. <laughs> you know these videos of his of his uh, his rallies. And I was surprised that in addition to the bigotry, which is you know loud, as I said before, his his bigotry, which is open and is disgusting. Uh, he also talked about a lot of uh, subjects that were very familiar to me, uh, deindustrialization and, and trade deals. 
And when he talked about the trade deals, it's as though the guy was lifting his script from like AFL-CIO talking points. It was it was bizarre. And he has stuck with that theme up until um, quite recently here. I mean, he talks about it, about trade and about deindustrialization all the time. This is one of the things that really sunk uh, Hillary Clinton was Trump's the way he talked about trade and about deindustrialization. This was really the Achilles heel of the Democrats. So, so okay, you're a pundit, so we have to ask you, what's going to happen now that he's imposing tariffs? Are the steel and aluminum tariffs on Canada and Mexico going to reopen that carrier plant in Indianapolis? What will the Trump supporters say when the EU imposes $3 billion in tariffs on American bourbon, American jeans, and American motorcycles, what will they say in Iowa when China taxes the import of pork and soybeans? Uh, I know. it's The guy doesn't know what he's doing. He's absolutely incompetent. Being able to say, you know, saying that NAFTA uh, was designed to deindustrialize places and to, and to weaken to, to weaken the bargaining power of workers is a true statement. To then do what Donald Trump is doing I mean, it's almost unrelated. It has nothing to do with it. A, a better example. So China is a currency manipulator. This is like well-established. People have written about this at great length. It's, it's, it's well-known. that When he talked about that, yes, that is, that is true. When he talked about that on the campaign trail. So what do you do, John, with a currency manipulator? Well, you, you, know, you can take them to the WTO and, and you know, uh, demand some kind of, of, of redress, right? You can uh, demand that from them directly, and you can say, if we don't get that, then we're going to do X, Y, and Z. And if we don't, you know, and eventually you might wind up slapping tariffs on this, that, and the other. Well, Trump skipped all those steps. <laughs> it just went straight to the tariffs. And it's not even clear what his demands are on the Chinese. The whole thing is, the whole thing is completely half-baked. He doesn't know what he's doing. That, by the way, that was always clear from the beginning, even when I, when I wrote that story about him back in, uh, in 2016, that he, he was very good at expressing people's anger about the trade issue, but it was never clear that he understood trade at all. This could get bad. I mean, him and his stupid trade wars. Uh, on the plus side, it hasn't gotten bad yet. And, and uh, you know, it seems unlikely to me that Donald Trump would really do something that would injure his billionaire friends, you know, which this has the potential to do. So one of the things you've been saying now for a couple of years uh, is there, despite all his bluster, lies, incompetence, despite everything obnoxious and horrible about him, there is, quote, something real about Trump. And one of those things, as you put it, is that for millions of Americans, there still has not been a recovery from the recession that brought Obama into office. Uh, and the responsibility for that does indeed lie on the Democrats and indeed on Obama himself. That's one of the themes of your book, that the Democrats could have done a lot to bring about recovery from that recession and that, that they failed to do so and that that's really the background to Trump. That's Yes, that is exactly right. And that's you put that very well. And I think about this all the time. You know, you read that quote from Michelle Goldberg, by the way, whose columns in the New York Times I really enjoy. I think she's great. But I have that same feeling when I think about the Obama years, that, that sort of feeling of... of you know, I, I just, I get so angry about it because when he came into office in 2009, 
and he was the hero, and he was so eloquent, and he had the he had the country behind him, and he had both houses of Congress, and he had the meanest man, the meanest, cleverest man in American politics, Rahm Emanuel, at his side. This is a guy that should have been unstoppable, uh, Barack Obama. He should have been able to get whatever he wanted. And he should have been, I mean, he came into office at a time of deep crisis, uh, you know, the financial crisis. We're heading into a deep recession. He should have been the Franklin Roosevelt of our time. Yeah. That's what I thought he was going to be. Yeah. And that's what I, uh, you know, he could have had with a little, you know, a little kind of Lyndon Johnson political hardball, could have got whatever he wanted uh, through Congress, but he frittered that away. And the frustration to me is that now we are back with this. It's like it's like it never happened. We're back with the culture wars. You know, Trump picking fights about the flag. Trump picking fights with the NFL. You know, Trump naming Supreme Court judges. We're right back to where we started. A Republican is back in, and he is. You know, and it, it, it's we had this fantastic opportunity. You know, Roosevelt in the '30s managed the crisis so well and did so well by Americans that the Democrats had a majority in, in uh, the House of Representatives from, from then until the 1990s, you know, for 60 years with, with, with two brief interruptions. Uh, you know, that's the power of that kind of good government. And Obama had that in his hands, and it slipped through his fingers. And I just... It, it, it makes me so furious. Not furious. It makes me. I don't know what. I don't know what I can say about it. It's. It's. There, there's something so depressing that now we're just back where we started, you know. And that Republican governance was not permanently discredited by the crash of 08, which it should have been. Uh, you know, George W. Bush should still be <laughs> in infamy. Instead, we regard him as as a good guy nowadays. Yeah. You know, we wish he was back. So, so, it, it is just like it drives me crazy. But exactly the way, what you said is exactly is exactly true. That people were still desperate eight years after the financial crisis, or however many years, and it, desperate enough to elect this charlatan into the White House in 2016. And by the way, de- still desperate. I mean, look at what's going on out there in America. Nation columnist Gary Young went back to Muncie, Indiana, a year after Trump was elected. He had spent the election season there, and he asked Trump supporters what they thought now. Most of them said they didn't really much like Trump as a person. They wouldn't want their kids to grow up to be like Trump. They wouldn't even really want to have a beer with Trump, but they still hoped he might do something that would help them with their problems, and they didn't think that Hillary would have. Yeah, that's. I think that's almost exactly right. That certainly uh, dovetails with everything that I've read uh, about the election. Uh, Trump was the most unpopular presidential candidate of all time, and Hillary was the second most unpopular. In 2016, as the Trump election was approaching, you published that book, called Listen Liberal, you warned about everything that we have talked about, everything the Democrats were doing wrong and needed to change. Tom, did the liberals listen? They didn't listen then, John. They're not listening now. And as far as I can tell, there is no, there is no listening program on the horizon. John, there wasn't even a postmortem after this election. I don't think they even intend to, uh, after 2016, I don't even think they intend to... Um, you know, there's a real problem with the Democratic Party. These are people who are 
uh, out of touch. Uh, they, a lot of their leadership is very elderly. Um, they are determined to not yield. They don't understand what is happening in America. And now remember something, the populist wave of 2016 wasn't just in the Republican Party. It was in the Democratic Party as well. Yes. You know, the Bernie Sanders movement. And they, they managed to, uh, the Republicans were not able to stop Trump, but the Democrats were able to stop Bernie Sanders. And you'd think they would, you know, after the debacle that enfolded them, that year, you'd think they would look back at that moment and say, you know, maybe that was a mistake. Maybe we should have played it differently. Uh, maybe we should be more open to this kind of politics, but they're not. And every indication is that that Bernie Sanders style uh, populism is still rolling in this country. Those people are still mad. Tom Frank, his new book is Rendezvous with Oblivion, Reports from a Sinking Society. Thank you, Tom. John, it is my pleasure. We taped that interview with Tom Frank earlier this month. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, and this is Trump Watch. Next up, Vietnam-era draft resistance in Los Angeles. That's in a minute on KPFK, when Trump Watch continues. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org, and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Coming up at four tonight on KPFK, this is happening Jerry quickly. But first, a bit of history, our history. During the Vietnam era, the cutting edge of the anti-war movement was draft resistance. The resistors were the vanguard of the anti-war movement. Historians of the movement, the draft resistance movement, focus on Boston as the original center of draft resistance and later on Oakland as the site of the most militant draft protest. But Los Angeles has had a significant and less known draft resistance movement of its own. And that story is currently being told in a wonderful exhibit at the downtown L.A. Public Library. For that story, we turn to Bob Zaw. He was a draft resistor. He played a key role in organizing the materials that went into the current exhibit. Bob Zaw, welcome to the program. Thank you. Well, we need to talk about three things. Your own experience as a draft resistor, the organization of the movement in L.A., and the exhibit currently up at the downtown public library. But first, let's remember what Donald Trump was doing at the time. He graduated from the Wharton Business School at the University of Pennsylvania in May 68. 68 was the year that almost 17,000 American soldiers died peak of the Vietnam War. Trump had had a student deferment, but after graduating, he was vulnerable to the draft. And a few weeks after his 22nd birthday, this was in July 68, he was classified 1A by his local draft board available for military service. And in September of 68, Donald Trump reported for an armed forces physical exam. He was then medically disqualified uh, and went to New York City to work in his father's real estate company. He says he, he got a, a, a medical deferment for F because he had bone spurs in his feet. Bob, where were you in 1968? What were you doing? Well, my uh, history with the draft resistance starts a little before that. You know, we, 
I went to college, but one of the reasons I was going to college was I didn't want to go to this war, and I could get a deferment. So I had a deferment. I had the 2S, same thing that Trump had. And somewhere around 66, I decided that um, I needed to do something about the war. And so I I rejected my 2S. I wasn't turning in my draft card. I was just saying, I'd like to think this over, and I want to put the 2S aside for for a while. And then I heard David Harris speak, and that changed it for me and a lot of other people. I uh, he he said, you know, your your life is the tool you have, and that we're all responsible for what goes on in this country. Um, and if you want to do something about the war, you can re- remove your participation from the draft. So I decided to turn in my draft card, and I turned it in on December fourth, nineteen sixty-seven, with a bunch of other people. And I joined the resistance full time. I I dropped out of grad school at UCLA and started organizing. I would go to the induction center four days a week at 6 a.m. to pass out flyers. Uh, we learned how to print, and uh, we started Peace Press. I did almost all of the printing for the resistance, and you know I became a full-time organizer. Was- now, refusing uh, uh, induction is a felony in, was a felony in the United States at, at that time. Uh, what happened? Uh, did the law uh, come after you? Well, first of all, turning in your draft card is a felony. Anything you did is a felony. You know, if people jaywalk across the street, that's a misdemeanor. But if you and I talk about organizing jaywalking, that's conspiracy. That's a felony. Conspiracy is breathing together. And that's what the government fears the most, mm-hmm. is us breathing together. So uh, turning in the draft card was was a felony, five years, $10,000 fine. But what they tended to do was to go after the leaders of the movement who were publicly refusing. I took a physical, and I flunked the physical also. I had rheumatoid spondylitis, still do. Now, I didn't get a 4F. I got a 1Y, and that was a classification created so that they could continue to have power over you. They could Mm -hmm. guide you into certain areas. Mm -hmm. And we found that the most effective flyer we could put out was manpower channeling, which was was General Hershey's notice to the government. It was an interior document, and we just printed it up and passed it out. It explained exactly what they were doing. So you got a 1Y, but that wasn't the end of it. No, I I turned in the 1Y. So that's... Another felony. That's a felony. And then I was... I was called, uh, I was made a 1A and I was called for a physical. This time I refused to take it publicly and that's a felony. And then they declared me 1A delinquent. They sent me orders for induction. I went down to the induction center and publicly refused induction. And then I waited for my indictments to come down. And they indicted me for refusing to take a physical and refusing induction. They left aside the other stuff. They just went for those two. And you had a trial. I had a trial, and I was fortunate. I, they, I think they draw the name of the judge out of the hat, and I drew Judge Harry Pragerson, the greatest judge in America. <laughs> he died uh, last November, I think. Yes, uh, 2007. So what was it like to be on trial before Judge Harry Pragerson, the most liberal judge in the Ninth Circuit, then or, or ever probably? Well, you know, he had sent—I uh, had three, three of my roommates— 
had somehow drawn him as their judge too. And he sentenced the first one to three years in prison and he went to solitary confinement in Lompoc. Mm. He sentenced the second guy to two and a half years in prison. Richard Perfumo, he went to the hole at Lompoc. Mm. The third guy, Jack Whitten, he gave him two years and he asked for some time to get his affairs together. And my memory is that he came down here to KPFK the day he was supposed to report for prison. And he went on the air and said, I'm not going to report. If you want me, I'm here till (laughs) three o'clock or something. (laughs) And then I'm leaving. And he left. And when I had my trial, um, after I was convicted, they asked me, do you know where Jack Whitten is? We'd, (laughs) We'd like to let him out, but we don't know where he is. And I said, well, I don't, I don't know where he is. But my trial, it's, it's uh, very frightening. I avoided public speaking at all costs during my life. And here I am defending myself in front of Judge Briggerson. You, you didn't have a lawyer? You defended yourself? Most of us went in without attorneys mm-hmm. because we didn't want Latin gibberish to get in the way of what, why we did what we did. Now, the other thing is that there were judges who, if you started to make your presentation about your motives, the prosecutor would object. The question is, did he refuse induction or did he go in the army? We don't care why. Did he or didn't he? And they objected immediately. And Pragerson said, I will hear what Mr. Zaw has to say. I would like to hear it. And he let me do everything I wanted in, in court. So you explain to the jury why you were refusing induction, and, and I, it, wait, I used a, I did a, a court trial. I did not ask for a jury. You explain to Judge Harry Pragerson yeah. your your motives, and uh, what sentence did he give you? The prevailing sentence at the time was three years, right? I think there was a gentleman's agreement in Los Angeles for three years, and he's. I had advisory counsel that they forced me to bring along. And so he turned to the advisory counsel and he said, look, uh, do you think his induction was speeded up? And and they go, well, you know, he doesn't want any defense. He wants to defend himself. He says, well, he says, true, but I want to know what what you say the law is. And they brought up Gutnick versus U.S. and Breen versus U.S. Didn't apply to me, but they made this argument. And I think that um, Pragerson was looking for a way to uh, now this was for the induction not the physical to get me off on the induction and then uh-huh. he wouldn't have to give me the three year sentence so he got me off on that he convicted me of the refusal to take a physical which is still five years but they sentenced me to work in the national interest which is similar to a CO and I refused I said I work at Peace Press. We print for Daniel Ellsberg. We print for the Communist Party. We print for the Black Panthers. And I think that's the national interest. I did it in a letter and they never challenged me on it. I just worked at Peace Press and then... So they accepted work at Peace Press as alternative to uh, going to prison for three years. They didn't do anything to me. I don't know whether they accepted it. (laughs) We're speaking with Bob Zaw, draft resistor who avoided prison. Of course, a lot of your comrades did go to prison. You've talked about two who were put in solitary confinement in in, in Lompoc. Most of them were sent to uh, a minimum security prison in Arizona. 
talk a little bit about what that was like. Well, we used to go to visit the prison in Arizona, and the fence was about, I don't know, two or three feet tall. And if you wanted to leave, have at it. You're in the desert, and and uh, you're not going to go far. <laughs> so nobody really left. Once in a while, somebody would go over the wall, and they'd walk three miles to a bar or something like that. That was rare. But, they, you know, it was still prison. Um, in Lompoc, to get back to Lompoc... Um, Pragerson went to Lompoc. Pragerson visited everybody he sent to prison, not just draft resistors, everybody, bank Amazing. robbers. Amazing. So he went to visit a bank robber, and he looked on the manifest, and he saw Mike Swartz's name. And he goes, what's he doing here? I thought he was picking corn in Arizona. And so he went to visit Mike in the hole, and he asked him if he wanted out. And he said, uh, no, I'm fine in solitary. And he went back to L.A., and I think Pragerson wrote up his own writ, and they brought Swartz back into court. He still wouldn't acknowledge the judge. He Complete stand. non-cooperation. Total. He didn't shave. He didn't eat. He went 37 days or something without <laughs> food. Anyway, he he came back into court, and they dismissed him. They brought Richard back, dismissed him. And I thought for years that it was my brilliant defense that got me acquitted on a charge. But I sat down with Pragerson uh, in 2016. I had a two-and-a-half-hour meeting with him. I brought Gary Tyler along, the youngest person on death row. We had a long meeting with Pragerson. And what he said was he went, when he visited Mike Schwartz in the hole, that he, he saw, one, the conditions of the prison he didn't like at all, and, two, he saw how serious the resistors were about not serving. Now, Pragerson was an, you know, a medal-winning, wounded combat veteran in World War II, but he decided that he would no longer send resistors to prison, and I was the next case. <laughs> <laughs> we're speaking with Bob Zaw. Um, draft resistance in L.A. was not just a matter of individual choice. You've talked about the resistance organization leaf leafleting the induction center at 6 a.m. Uh, tell us a little bit about how the organization got started in L.A. I understand there was an office in Westwood. Yes, well, you know, uh, there was a professor at UCLA, Don Kalish, and he set aside some money and he rented office space and he brought in Winter Dellenbach to run it. He was impressed by her civil disobedience at UCLA. And that's where Vietnam summer started and the the rumblings of draft resistance started there. It was the SDS and the resistance. Let me just say Don Kalish is a name that some old timers may recall as being the head of the Angela Davis Defense Committee at UCLA starting in 1969. I've learned from, from Bob Zaw that he also paid for the rent on the draft resistance office in Westwood in 1967. Yeah. So you guys uh, leafleted, uh, and what else did you do? Well, we, we went to the induction center and leafleted all the time. We also trained with Bill Smith in draft counseling so that we could talk to the people who wanted to find ways through the draft. And we would tell them everything. And at the very end, we would say, now here's what we're doing. We're doing draft resistance. But we would tell them, you know, 
about COs, where you could, what the best draft were, boards were to apply for a CO, places where they could shift their actual induction because hmm. they had lower standards. You could flunk the physical e easier. Mm -hmm. We did what we could to give people information if they wanted to avoid the draft. Let me just say one thing about the leafleting. Uh, you know, left-wingers, union people have been leafleting for most of the last century, and it, all, it often seems like a, a pretty low-result uh, low kind of activity. We did a, a panel at the downtown public library about the resistance in the exhibit, uh, what, two weeks ago with three guys who went to prison. One of them, Jeffrey Fishman, was a refused induction, but he had never had anything to do with the draft resistance movement up to the day of, of his physical. He had never talked to a single person, not anyone in his family, not his classmates. He just didn't step forward when they said, you know, step forward and take the oath of allegiance to the army. When he walked into the building, he said he was given a leaflet. They sent him home, and he looked at the leaflet. You remember what he said happened then? Well, he decided he would link up with the resistance. I don't remember his exact words yeah, last week, yeah. but he linked up with us, and we started to— uh, we had meetings every couple weeks at the First Unitarian Church. We had potlucks. One of the things I would do was—by uh, the way, Jack Whitten— the guy who went on radio when he was supposed to, he also chose to refuse induction at the induction center after we passed him a flyer. He looked at it and goes, I think I'll do this. I think <laughs> oh, I'll do this. Amazing. <laughs> One of the things I would do was I would go around town. I would go onto a college campus, and I would look for somebody with long hair, and I would say, who are the liberal teachers on this campus? And they would tell me who they were, and I would find their office hours, and I would go and I would ask them mm. if we could speak in their class about the resistance and refusing induction, little realizing in my naivety that they were gambling their academic freedom by allowing us to do this. But you know, we did this at L.A. City College, Moore Park, El Camino, Glendale College, uh, just a bunch of schools. And they allowed us in their classes. So we did things like that. Well, the downtown L.A. Public Library has an exhibit up now. It's, it closes on August 19th. It's called The L.A. Resistance, Vietnam, and the Draft. It features all kinds of amazing posters, photographs, documents from the era. You uh, were a key person in organizing it. Let's talk a little bit about what's in the exhibit. What do you think are the most significant or, or uh, interesting things there? Well, in 2009, Winter and I and a few others organized a reunion of the resistance. And so at that reunion, which was in Santa Monica, David Harris came, Ron Kovic came. You know, a lot of people came from around the country and even overseas. So we had about 75 people, and we discussed gathering up archives and finding a place for them. And so I went to... Uh, UCLA, and I talked with them, and I just didn't like the vibe I was getting there. So I talked to Sarah Pillsbury, who runs, founded the Liberty Hill Foundation, yes. and she said, uh, you should call John Zabo of the L.A. Public Library. And I called him up, cold called him, called me right back the next day, and he heard what we had, and he sent somebody down immediately. And so we started gathering up trial transcripts, flyers, 
some people like Joe and Jeffrey Fishman. Joe, really, Joe is Joe Mazelish, Joe Mazelish. very high-profile draft resistor yes. from UCLA. Yes, and he had a show here at KPFK. We had a, a show or two at KPFK back in the 67 before Joe went to prison. We discussed draft counseling and draft issues. Wow. So Joe has materials. Other people handed in stuff, and this was all gathered in uh, in your uh, kitchen, I believe. That's where it started. Uh, Winter, who lives in Palo Alto, she was sort of the point person getting people's attention and sending out the emails, and it would come to me, and I would I would get it downtown, and, and they put together a great uh, well, great archive, I'm, including I'm a, a newspaper. I'm unfolding the newspaper <laughs> here. Uh, you have a fascinating story here, the curious tale of the collage. Tell us about the curious tale of the collage. Okay, that's that's my favorite. And we <laughs> didn't find I didn't find out about this till our reunion ten years ago. So we had these three draft card turn ins, uh, December fourth, April third, and uh, and October sixteenth. And nineteen sixty sixty seven was October and December, and then April third. The next year, 68, and I think we had one late November in mm-hmm. 68. But on the April 3rd one, we were always very theatrical, and we decided to do a collage, and people would paste their cards to it at MacArthur Park. So we had this big collage, people turned in their draft cards, and we would march downtown to give it to the feds because we did everything openly, and they wouldn't take it. They kind of locked us out of the building. And so Norman Woody took the collage home, and the FBI broke into his house and stole it. <laughs> and he decided well, but to... Wait a minute. You tried to give it to them and they wouldn't accept it. Did you point this? Did they point this out to the... Well, Norman... Well, the FBI's who broke in the house, we tried to turn it into the feds. You know, that's they're different bureaucracies. <laughs> okay. But uh, Norman decided to sue to get the collage back. And so... The attorney we got was a prosecutor who was putting us in jail. He heard about what happened to us, and he quit his job. His oh. name was Michael Green, and he became uh, – this was his first case. So anyway, one of the things that happened was Norman had a girlfriend, and his – the girlfriend's father was in the FBI. And he came out west to do some business, and he decided to stop off and give – Norman, a stern lecture about, you know, going up against the government of this country. And this guy's name was W. Mark Felt. <laughs> Number two to J. Edgar Hoover. Three years later, he was deep throat. And yes, and, and now it has been revealed much, much later that this Mark W. Mark Felt. So that's... Uh, that's an amazing story. Um, we've only got a minute or two um, left here. What else? What else can you tell us about the exhibit at the at the library? We have photos. Uh, one of the things we have is we have a large sort of poster version of David Harris's uh, statements about what what we learned back then and what what's applicable now, and. He, was, he had a big effect on my life, and, and one of the things he said back then, so I think this is the one thing that everybody should take a look at. He says, we all have a constituency of friends and family who watch, watch us. That's where politics begins. And I, he said that back then, mm-hmm. and I learned that that's true, even though I wasn't like 
trying to be in the news or anything. People watched what we, what I did, and ultimately, I think uh, I know 10 people, including people from Peace Press, who decided to commit civil disobedience. And that's where social change starts is one person at a time, one action at a time, and you step to the edge of where your fear kicks in, and you take the first step beyond that fear, and then you take another step. For me, it was turning turning the 2S back, and then it was the draft card, and then it was on and on until I was a complete non-cooperator. The exhibit at the downtown library is called The L.A. Resistance, Vietnam, and the Draft. It's terrific. You can see it through August 19th. Bob Zaw, thank you for what you did in the 60s. Thanks for getting the history of draft resistance in L.A., into the library and into this exhibit. And thanks for coming into KPFK today. Thank you. That's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank my other guests. Harold Meyerson of the American Prospect talked about Trump and about Jonathan Gold, who died on Saturday. We also spoke with Tom Frank about his new book, Rendezvous with Oblivion. Thanks to our engineer today, Gary Baca. Thanks to our producer, Renee Reynolds. And thanks, as always, to Rye Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Coming up at four tonight on KPFK, this is happening. Jerry, quickly. Hey, Trump watchers, if you missed any part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Trump Watch returns next week at this same time on this same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening.